0: Well, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Uh, A few months ago, I just have a quick story. It's a true story. A few months ago, I was in Kroger grocery shopping, and uh, I was walking through the deli section, and I saw a familiar face. It was uh, a teacher that I had my junior year of high school who taught English. And I see her, and I begin a, a conversation with her. And one of the things I have to confess is that back in high school, especially in her class for some reason, Uh, I tended to get in some trouble. I was a pretty good kid, and uh, a lot of times it was kind of under the table, a little passive-aggressive, but I would do things and goof off with friends, say things that I thought about sharing a couple stories, but I see there's some kids here, so I'm not even going to promote that kind of behavior. And so, as a result of our conversation, talking with her for a few minutes, I felt an overwhelming conviction that I needed to apologize for being such a moron back in high school. So I approach this teacher, and I, I'm talking about uh, about everything that, that I did, and I apologize for it, and she graciously forgives me, which is just awesome, and we talk a little more, and she begins talking about her recollection of having my father in high school. See, my dad went to the same school, and she had been there for years. She's now retired, and as she's sharing and talking a little bit, I realized that my dad used to be a moron in that class, too. <laughs> so what ended up happening is I end up talking with her and I end up apologizing for both myself and my father's behavior and in the Delhi section of Kroger we have a multi-generational pardon that takes place for the Berkman family, so that was really good. But you know, it really made me think about this reality. So much of who we are is inherited. So much of our identity and who we are, it comes from those who went before us. I apparently got my lack of judgment and my sense of humor from my father And from stories I've heard and from the recollection I have of my grandfather, I think he probably got his lack of judgment and sense of humor from his father. The truth is we've all been shaped by our ancestors, shaped by those who went before us. In some way or another, at some level, we've all been shaped. And when we open the Bible and we turn to the pages of Scripture and we look at the biblical example of different characters, there's one example that really stands out that I feel like speaks into all our lives, someone we've been shaped uh, drastically by. We all have an ancestry with one particular man for sure, and that's the man Adam. So I'm going to encourage you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Now, if you came here this morning and uh, you don't have a Bible at home, and there's a seat back Bible in front of you, you can take that home with you today. That's our gift to you. Also, just a heads up, we have a, a pretty cool app we put a lot of work into that we encourage people to utilize uh, in church. We know that you're not... Um, Snapchatting somebody probably, you're probably actually on your your app, which is great, and so we encourage you to use that and follow along with with sermon notes, also to use the Bible translation we have in there, you can use that and follow along, but we're going to be in the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. And as you're opening your Bible and turning there, just want to remind you that we're in a series, a sermon series called Jesus and the Old Testament. This whole series looks at different examples of scripture, different people in the Old Testament, characters, stories, events, and it it shows how Jesus is the focal point of the entire Old Testament. And so last week, I began this series by doing kind of an introduction uh, to the, the whole series, an introductory message, really looking at Jesus and his own words and how he says that all the Old Testament points to him. And so this week, we're looking at the first character in our study. We're looking at the life of Adam. Now for most people, whether you grew up in the church or not, you know something of Adam and Eve. Almost everybody knows the story of Adam and Eve because we hear it all over the place. So in the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, we read of this amazing creation story. And in this story, we realize that God creates the first human being, and his name is Adam. Now the name Adam in our Bible is both a proper name, that's his actual name, it's also a generic Hebrew word, Uh, which means man or mankind. And so if we look at the beginning of the book of Genesis, we see that Moses writes this book and he shifts back and forth frequently using the word Adam, which is a Hebrew word to describe the individual character that we know as Adam in our story, as well as describing the entire human race. Now, I don't think it's a coincidence that Adam's name means man or mankind, I think this is an amazing way that that we read this story, and we know it's not coincidental. It's a way of describing the fact that Adam is both an actual, real-life person who existed. We believe he is historical. But at the same time, it's an amazing way of describing how Adam is really a representative of humanity, of the entire human race. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a few moments. Um, So God creates Adam, and in this story of creation, when he creates man, we have two very unique aspects to notice. The first thing we realize in this creation narrative is, first of all, God makes Adam from the dust of the ground. Now again, the word ground or land throughout uh, the book of Genesis, throughout the Old Testament, that's a pretty key word, actually, if you study, it's the word Adama. So it's very closely related to Adam's name. There's a correlation there. And so I would say that there's a very significant aspect of Adam's connection to the land, to the ground, here in the opening pages of Genesis. Not only is he made from the ground, but his very name is very closely related to the word ground or land. So that's, first of all, something unique that we want to recognize. Secondly, remember that Adam is created in the image of God. In fact, he shapes him out of the dust. And what does God do to bring life? He breathes into him the breath of life. And Adam is a living being, a living human. And so with Adam... We see in his very creation, there's a connection both heavenly to God as he's made in God's image, and a connection to the earth as he's made from the dust of the ground. And so because of this connection, the first thing we're going to focus on, and we'll see this kind of unpacked a little bit, is this, the authority. So if you've got your little handout, whether it's the paper one or the app, that's the first point to fill out, the authority. Adam is given authority by God in the very beginning. Let's look at this in Genesis 1. We're going to look at verses 26 through 29. This is where the narrative goes. This is, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And I think it continues there. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in, in its fruit. You shall have them for food. So notice how in this section, in this passage, Adam and Eve, are divinely appointed by God to a position of authority over all the earth. Let's look at a few of these uh, expressions. It says, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds, the livestock, and and over all the earth. So first of all, they're given dominion. Then it says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. God also says, I have given you Every plant and every tree. And he says later on, he's given them those things for food, for their good. So this language demonstrates authority that is given to Adam. The concept that we see here in the early chapters of Genesis is that God is this great king over the entire universe. And this story, as it progresses, we realize that God has established Adam as a governor in a sense, or a vice-regent. And that's kind of a, a weird word, but He's He's ruling for God on the earth over God's kingdom on the earth. God appoints him a position of authority. So Adam, his, his specific task here, he's charged to rule over the garden, to work the ground, to cultivate it, to protect it from the enemies who might invade the king's territory, to expand the borders of the garden, to multiply the kingdom by filling it with loyal subjects who want to honor and worship and praise and serve the king. This is Adam's task. This is the creation mandate. Adam is given a unique role in this garden. He's not only just working the ground, he's making it and beautifying it into something that really glorifies God. So that whole command to be fruitful and multiply, in my estimation, I don't just say it's just about having babies. Now, When I do premarital counseling, we have a lot of couples who talk about wanting to have kids, and unfortunately some people are never able to have children, and that doesn't mean that your the purpose of your marriage is void in any way. Really what it's talking about is discipleship making worshipers who want to worship and honor the king, spreading God's glory by expanding these these followers of the king. So this is Adam's mandate in the garden. And it's interesting, he has this connection with the ground. He's given an assignment from heaven, but he's, he's given an earthly ministry. And as men, I always feel like there's something really deep and intimate with the earth, with the ground. I'll give you an example. I've got a pretty cushy office job. I spend a lot of time at my desk. And at different points, I kind of get to a, 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 a season maybe throughout my week where I, I kind of feel like I'm going to go crazy. Like I just need to get up and go outside or walk around. In fact, sometimes in the summer, I'll just shoot free throws for lunch for about five minutes just to clear my brain, just to be outside and be around the earth and not be sitting at an office because something, something about working the ground, beautifying things, building something with your hands, there's something manly about that. There's something that connects us. our purpose in the beginning of creation we were made for earth we're earthlings in fact that's where we're going to end up being forever we're made for earth and so there's something really in our dna that really connects us to that and so adam he has this major responsibility in the beginning he's bestowed an important position by the king and he's given incredible authority over the earth but with that authority comes the agreement this is the second point the agreement. Adam makes an agreement with God. Let's look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So once again, we see that mandate that God says, hey, you're supposed to work and keep the garden. And notice there's a blessing that's included with that. God says, you may surely eat of every tree that's in the garden. Now imagine this. You're in paradise. This is perfect. There's no pain, no sin, no death, no destruction. Everything is perfect. Perfect worry-free living. Adam is able to eat from any tree he wants included in that. In verse 9 of chapter 2, it says there's a tree of life. And so Adam has access to eternal life in this garden, blissful living, enjoyment with his wife Eve and their children forever in tropical paradise. He's got a pretty good gig. Things are looking pretty good, but see, there's a condition. There's a condition. He says, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So Adam is given authority. He's given responsibility on the earth. God blesses him with life and joy and bliss under the one condition that he not eat from that one tree in the center of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the agreement. In fact, it's more than just an agreement. This is a covenant that God makes with Adam. We often call this the Edenic covenant If you're in reform circles, they call it a covenant of works, where God has made this covenant with Adam that if he is obedient to God and carries forth his duties, God will will give him eternal life and blessing. But if Adam is disobedient, he's going to experience death and cursing. This is the agreement that's made. This is the covenant that's made in the garden. And so Adam enters into this covenant in verses 15 through 17. But you know, what's interesting is sometimes I study chapter 2, or I hear people talk about it, and they only talk about the one covenant in the garden. There are actually two covenants. There's another covenant made right there, in that chapter 2. Because Adam also, in the following verses, he makes a covenant with his wife, Eve. It's the marriage covenant, the first wedding that we see take place, that that God brings the woman to the man, the two of them become one flesh, they're united, they're joined together. They make a covenant arrangement of marriage. And biblically, within the covenant of marriage, the husband is given a very distinct role. The covenant, uh, the covenant that the man makes with his bride includes his role as the leader, as the one who is protecting and caring for his bride. That's the role. That's the role of a godly husband. Just read Ephesians 5 talks about this relationship, the marriage covenant, and how the husband is supposed to provide these things and and take care of the wife and lead her spiritually, lead the household. And so Adam is involved in two separate covenants here in Genesis chapter 2. And by the end of the chapter, things are looking really good. If you read chapter 1 and chapter 2, it's great. Adam's in paradise. He's chilling with a bunch of really cool animals. None of them are trying to eat him. He's with his wife. Things are great. God is walking and talking with them. Everything is perfect. And then we get to chapter 3. Chapter 3, we have this, the apostasy. This is the third point. Adam rebels against God. Let's read verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than the other beasts of the field that, God, that the Lord God had made. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So notice how in this story, in this passage, in the first seven verses of chapter three, Adam fails on several different fronts. He fails in several different areas. First of all, what is the serpent doing there? Who was in charge of working and keeping the garden, protecting this place? Adam. Adam was in charge of making sure that this is a place that was God's space. And so he's responsible there. Who's responsible for all the animals in the garden? Adam. He was given the authority to rule that place, to have dominion, to protect the garden, And instead, this traitor, this enemy of the king, enters into the garden. So Adam fails, number one. He's not exercising proper authority, the authority that God had given him. That's number one. Number two, notice how it says, immediately after Eve eats of the fruit, it says that she took of its fruit, she ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. So it's pretty bad that Eve was deceived, that she ate the fruit. In fact, we blame Eve quite often, us men, We probably like to remind women of that sometimes. Oh, well, who's the first one to eat the fruit, right? But why was Adam just sitting back and letting all this happen? Adam forfeits his leadership role as husband. He passively sits back and allows his wife to be deceived. Adam fails as a husband. What's the second failure. And I just want to speak into this for a second. Spiritually, men out there, we're the leaders of the household. Spiritually. We're to be providing this kind of leadership in the home. And so as men, so often part of our nature, I think also part of sin in the fall, we're so easily prone to be passive. Let's not be passive men. Let's not be passive husbands who just sit back and let our wife take care of the spiritual leadership of our home. No, God has commissioned us with that task. To raise our kids in the fear and instruction of the Lord, to to wash our spouses with the water of the word, to lead spiritually as men. We often think that NASCAR and pork rinds are manly. No. Following Christ as a godly husband, that is manly. So Adam fails, number two, because he is not leading his home, he's not leading his, his spouse, he's not protecting her, he's sitting back and watching her be deceived. And thirdly, Adam fails because he eats the fruit himself. The very thing that God said he should not do, he violates this covenant he made with God. And so as a result of this blatant rebellion, we know the Bible says that all of creation is impacted by, by Adam's covenant-breaking decision. On every level, Adam is a failure here. He's an insufficient ruler in the garden. He's a passive husband toward Eve. He's unfaithful faithful to his covenant toward God. And I know that we like to blame Eve, like I mentioned, but biblically, the one who's always referenced is the one who's the father of all that sin, the one who started all that, is Adam. Adam is the one that's held primarily responsible for the fall, and the Bible really pins all this on him. He's the culpable one. Adam fails in chapter three, and so we have a massive failure from chapter two to chapter three. What a difference. And now we have the aftermath. The aftermath. There are several consequences to Adam's actions. We aren't going to read all of the rest of chapter 3. There's a whole lot you can read there. But the way the narrative goes, first of all, God speaks. And he says, Adam, where are you? We know some of this story. Adam is hiding with his wife. And when he's confronted with his sin, what does Adam do first? Uh, Well, everybody else did it. It's the serpent. It's the woman you gave me. Adam does the blame game. And God calls him out on his own sin, and calls the all everyone out on their sin. And so we see that God issues curses upon the serpent, upon Eve, and upon Adam. And these curses, they affect the entire human race in very distinct ways. i got three ways I just want to mention. Number one, it affects our relationship with God. Because of the fall, because of sin, the fellowship that we once had with God is now destroyed by sin. The image of God that we were created in, it's distorted by sin. We're all still in God's image. It's almost like a mirror, but instead of reflecting that image truly like God, it's all cracked and broken and distorted. It's all marred by sin. Every aspect of our identity in Adam is marred by sin. Instead of having favor with God, we await God's holy wrath and judgment. So, number one, we're affected in our relationship with God because of the fall. Secondly, we're affected in our relationship with others. I don't like conflict. I don't like arguments and fights and squabbles. I don't like war. I don't like racism and injustice. But that's all the fruit of the rebellion that took place in the garden. It's caused by sin. We have strife with one another. In fact, one of the specific curses that's given to the woman is a power struggle in marriage. Where she'll often try to rule over him and he will domineeringly rule over her. Also, we see the pain in childbearing. These earthly relationships, these earthly connections are damaged as well. So number one, it's our relationship with God. Number two, our relationship with others. Number three, it affects our relationship with the earth. Work is now burdensome. We see thorns and thistles, they spring forth in this narrative. Life on earth includes toil and struggle and suffering, and we experience death. And the Bible says that Adam returns to the ground. He's made from the dust, and to dust he shall return so on every level, on every aspect, sin has affected everything. And so at the end of chapter 3, we have this big cherubim who blocks the entrance to the garden. This means there's no access to eternal life, and it's a removal from God's presence. And so by the time we get to the end of chapter 3, this is just a sad, sad story. Adam has messed up big time. And unfortunately, the Bible says he is our representative. Sometimes we like to call it a federal head which means that we are all held responsible for this apostasy because of the fact that we're in Adam. Is Adam responsible? Absolutely. Are we responsible? Biblically, absolutely. We're all condemned and found guilty in Adam. Romans 5:18 says, "The one trespass led to condemnation to all men." So not only did Adam mess up, we messed up. It stinks. But there's hope. There's amazing hope. Finally, we have the anticipation. God still has a plan for mankind. First of all, we see that God approaches Adam and Eve in their guilt and shame, and he provides coverings for them, coverings of animal skin. Now, earlier in chapter 3, remember after they sinned, they, they realized their nakedness. They were ashamed. Before then, they could walk around freely because there was no such thing as shame and judgment and sin. And so there was no aspect to their guilt and to their shame until the fall happened, until sin entered the equation. So finally they realized, hey, we're, we're naked. We, we've got this, this nakedness. We need to cover ourselves. And so they take these leaves and try to cover themselves. And ultimately that's insufficient. So what does God do? He takes the skin of an animal. He kills an animal to provide coverings temporarily for man's sin. Something has to die in order to cover Adam and Eve and their nakedness and their shame and their guilt. But see, God doesn't just temporarily cover Adam and Eve. He also makes a promise, and I love this. He says this to the serpent in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now this promise is often called the uh, proto-evangelium, which means the first gospel, and so this promise comes with hope and great anticipation for the future. God is making a gospel promise here, and this is how it works. There's really two different kinds of people that are described in this promise. First of all, you have the seed of the woman. This describes all those faithful people who are faithful to the king, God's chosen servants who carry out his will. We have Abraham, this line. Moses, David, continuing this line of faithful people. Eventually, we find the ultimate chosen one is who? Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate chosen one. He is the ultimate fulfillment of the seed of the woman, this line, this godly line. Then we have the seed of the serpent. This describes unfaithful people who reject the king. These are characters in the Old Testament we read about, like Lamech and Pharaoh and the Canaanites. And eventually, it concludes with the ultimate example of God's enemy, Satan. So you have these two groups and these two characters, Christ and Satan. Now the promise states that these two people, the chosen one, Jesus, and the enemy, Satan, they will do battle together. And they will both strike one another. Now the wounds inflicted upon the enemy are fatal. This is a wound to the head. Because he shall bruise your head. But the wounds inflicted upon the chosen one, they only take him down for a brief season. This promise is all about the gospel. It's a story about Jesus Christ coming as God's chosen one. He came to a world filled with sin and guilt and shame. And unlike the animal skin that had to be placed upon Adam and Eve, which only provided a temporary covering, Jesus died for us so we could be fully atoned for once and for all. Jesus was crucified for our crimes. He was murdered and placed in a tomb. And in his death, the enemies of God rejoiced. They thought they had victory when they saw this Messiah, the promised one, go down. But we know that death couldn't hold them. It was merely a strike to the heel because there, three days after Jesus died on the cross, he rose again bodily. He rose from the dead, gloriously, victoriously. And his victory over death provides victory and hope for us. Because through Christ, the curse of Adam is being reversed. This promise points us to Jesus. In fact, this entire story points us to Christ we read in Romans chapter 5 all about Adam and all about Christ and one of the moments in that chapter it actually says something very interesting it says Adam who is a type of Christ so what the author of Romans is saying is that there's this this character Adam and he's representing Jesus in so many unique ways and so I just want to very quickly move our way through Some of those major points we made, and I want to see Jesus in the Old Testament. See him throughout this story. So, remember how in the beginning, Adam is given this authority. He's elevated to a position of authority over all the earth in the Garden of Eden. Well, the Bible says that Jesus had ultimate authority over heaven and earth. Yet, when he came to earth, he did not want to elevate his own position. He came in humility. In fact, he forfeited his glorious position in heaven, laid that aside, and embraced the despised and and humble position on the cross. Remember how Adam made this agreement with God that he could not keep, and he failed in his covenant with his wife by idly standing by as she was lured into sin? Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus has kept his covenant agreement with the Father, he's kept his agreement, even though that meant suffering and death. Jesus also made a covenant with his bride, the church, a, bride, uh, a covenant that he will never fail on because he's always faithful. He's always faithful to his bride. He's always faithful to his covenant. Jesus is the perfect husband. He will never fail. Remember how Adam, he had this one unrighteous act of apostasy that resulted in death and condemnation for the entire human race? Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus' one act of, of righteous obedience, it resulted in life and forgiveness for everyone who believes. Remember how the aftermath of Adam's sin was separation from God, where he no longer walked and talked with God in the garden. He was banished from paradise. He lost access to the tree of life forever. Well, the Bible tells us that the aftermath of Jesus' sacrifice will be a return to God's presence. One day we will walk and talk. We will be face-to-face with him forever. That's going to be a place where paradise will return. We'll have access once again. It's, it's so much better, though, than the garden. Because this paradise is something that will never, ever end. And there's going to be the tree of life there. Praise God for the hope that we have in Jesus. Every aspect of this story points us in one way or another to the Messiah, to Jesus. So even though today we still resemble and bear much of the image of our great ancestor Adam, I look forward in anticipation to the day when Christ is going to return, and we will be fully and completely patterned after the second man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture says that we will be changed, we will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye, we will be made like him, and we shall see him as he is. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse, 40, verse 49, Just as we have been born of the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Beloved, the saying is true. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. It doesn't fall far from the tree, but praise God, we've been grafted into Jesus Christ. We've been grafted into his tree, and by faith, we are now united to Christ. And all that was lost and broken and distorted in Adam is being made new in Christ. The curse is being reversed. So in light of all this, our response is praise and worship. I'll just be honest. Normally I have a very clear application I pull from the passage of the text. The application this morning is worship. I mean, how can we not see all that Jesus has accomplished for us in redemption, in light of all that Adam had destroyed, and all that we destroyed because of our sin, how can we not see this and respond with lives that are changed and transformed, that want to glorify him and worship him forever? This morning, I hope your affections for Christ are increased. As we look at the bleak and dire situation in Genesis chapter 3, and we go throughout the pages of Scripture and recognize all that was part of God's sovereign plan, Jesus is making all things new. He's transforming us. He's changing our image, our identity, and I look forward to the day when we will see Him and be like Him. So let's praise and worship Him this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this morning and for your word. Thank you for the story of Adam and how through this example of sin and rebellion and defeat and hopelessness, we find hope. Because, Father, we look at your Son, Jesus Christ, and we recognize, Father, this was all part of your plan. That though everything seem to crumble in this story? Father, you have restored everything, and Father, we look forward to the consummation of all things because through your Son, he has had the ultimate victory. He has crushed the head of the serpent. Jesus is the promised one that has come and redeemed us and rescued us, and Father, I thank you that we are now being more and more progressively patterned after his likeness. Father, I thank you that we are grafted into your family, that we belong by faith to your family. And I pray, Father, that this church would just respond in gratitude and in love and praise. Father, we look forward to the day when your son will return. We look forward to that day. We praise you. We thank you. and the precious name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray all these things. Amen.